Let me just add my welcome to everyone, whether you're here in person or online. Uh, we appreciate you being here with us today. If you happen to be new or you're joining us for the first time, we thank you for taking time to spend this time with us. If you are new, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And uh, this week, we are in our second week of a new series. We started last week where we are teaching through the book of James and we'll be doing that through the spring and through much of the summer as well. So last week we kicked the series off, did sort of an overview of the book, an intro message, if you will, to give us a feel for it. And so this morning we want to continue as we begin really digging into the content of this book. And we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 2 through 12 today. And the title of the message today is faith that works in trials. One of my favorite modern-day philosophers, if you want to call him that, is former New York Yankees catcher Yogi Berra. Uh, Yogi Berra played Major League Baseball for the Yankees for 18 years, and after an illustrious career as a player, he went on to manage several years in the major leagues, and uh, was well known in the sport, but Yogi Berra really was bigger than baseball. He, trans he had a personality and a character that transcended the sport. Uh, one of the evidences of that is you might be familiar with the cartoon character called Yogi Bear, right? And uh, though Hannah Barbera, who created Yogi Bear, vehemently denied it, uh, everyone knew that Yogi Bear was named after Yogi Bear, And part of the reason they denied it is because Yogi Bear was suing them, uh, and so they didn't want any connection. But, uh, but Yogi Bear was clearly a play on Yogi Bear, And sadly, Yogi Berra, not Bear, passed away in September of 2015. And Yogi Bear was no Shakespeare, but he had a unique way of saying things that was unlike anybody else. Uh, his words would just often leave you shaking your head as you try to sort out what in the world is he saying. Let me just give you a little sample of Yogi's wisdom. Some things that he said when, regarding the game of baseball. He said 90% of the game is half mental. He said, you give 100% in the first half of the game, and if that isn't enough, the second half, you give what's left. I mean, you feel your mind just start to tilt a little bit as you just try to wrap your head around that. But Yogi didn't just talk about baseball. He talked about life in general. And one, one of the things you may have heard that he said is, uh, it's deja vu all over again. But he said other things. He said, never answer an anonymous letter. The future ain't what it used to be. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. And then finally, you should always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. That was the wisdom of Yogi Berra. And, you know, I think when we look at this passage in James 1, 2 through 12, we, we might at first be tempted to wonder whether this letter was written by Yogi Berra. 
Because James begins this section by saying to his readers in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, being joyful and experiencing trials, those those are just two things that don't seem like they should go together. They don't fit in the same sentence. So what exactly is James trying to say in this statement? Is he just some masochistic leader encouraging people to delight in the pain and suffering of their challenges and trials in life? No, I don't think that's really his point at all. James is really deeply concerned about the trials and suffering that his readers are facing. He wastes no time in this letter in addressing the topic of trials. If you think about the way James opens this letter, he says, it's James, hello, let me talk to you about trials. No words of appreciation or thanksgiving for the people he's writing to like we see in other New Testament letters. But it's just, hey, this is James. I need to talk to you about trials. This, this topic is clearly weighing on his heart. So just to give you a little background, a little review from last week for a moment as to what's going on in these people's lives. The, the people he is writing to, they have been dislocated and scattered throughout a number of different countries. And they are mostly dislocated because they are fleeing persecution. Many of them fleeing persecution from Jerusalem that broke out against the church after the stoning of Stephen. And they have fled Jerusalem to all these other places. And many of them are members of James's church, who was the head pastor in Jerusalem. And so James knows them, which is why he's concerned about what's going on in their lives. And as these people have sort of scattered and become dislocated, they're experiencing all kinds of difficulties and trials. The normal trials that we all go through of sickness and grief and the disappointments of life. But they're also experiencing persecution even where they're going to. And they're experiencing poverty. You know, when you flee persecution, you don't put the house up for sale. You don't call the moving company to come and get your stuff. You just grab what you can and go. And so many of them are struggling with poverty and they're in hostile environments where the people there that are around them are hostile to their faith. And so they are experiencing trials of difficulty as well as trials of temptation and how they are seeking to live out their Christian lives. And they are struggling and they are confused. And really, when you think about it, this this is kind of one of the most perplexing questions that as Christians we wrestle with in our own lives, isn't it? Kind of the idea of why do God's people suffer? Why do we go through trials and difficulties? I mean, if God loves us, if he cares so much about us that he would send his son to die for us, why does he allow difficulty and trials and suffering in our lives. And so James's concern for how they're responding to the trials and challenges they're experiencing is really one of the primary reasons that he's writing this letter. 
And in this passage in James 1, 2 through 12, James wants them to see their trials and difficulties, not with eyes that only see the challenges and the hardship and the suffering, but with eyes that look beyond the immediate circumstances. Eyes that see with a faith that is living and real. See, James wants his readers to understand something about trials that can only be seen with eyes that see with real and living faith. Because real faith knows that trials are God's tools to shape our lives for good. That's what James is wanting to get across in this passage. That's the main point that he's writing about in these verses. That's the main idea of the message this morning. Real faith knows that trials are God's tools to shape our lives for good. And in these verses, there are three things we want to look at this morning that help us see how God uses trials to shape our lives for good. So before we look at that more closely, let's take a moment and ask God to be with us this morning. Well, Lord, we just come as we look at your word, Lord. You, through your spirit, through the, the, the pen of James, Lord, you wrote these words, not just for his readers, but for us today as well. And so, Lord, we ask that you would meet us, each of us, in this time, wherever we may be. Because, Lord, if we are not in a trial now, we will be someday. And you would use your word to be a blessing to your people, to encourage us, to help us see, Lord, the bigger picture of what you do through times like this. So, Lord, send your spirit now. Help me to communicate your truth faithfully and accurately. And, Lord, speak to each of us that you might minister your grace for the glory of your name and the good of your people this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first thing we want to see about how trials are God's tools to shape our lives for good is that God uses trials to build our faith and character. So let's begin by looking at verses 2 through 4 of James 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, if we're going to understand how we can consider trials a joy, we need to begin with an understanding of God's perspective on what good is when it comes to our lives. See, the goal of our life from God's point of view is not for us to live a life of maximum comfort and ease. God's not into the health and wealth approach to the Christian life. His goal is to make us into the image of his son, to build our lives, to be more and more like Jesus Christ, to shape us so that we grow in spiritual maturity and holiness. God is committed to that goal in the life of every believer. And trials are a key tool that God uses to do just that. See, trials are not random or coincidental. 
They are uniquely designed by a sovereign and perfectly good God for each one of us. See, trials have a purpose in our lives. And James tells us in verses 2 through 4 that that purpose is to accomplish three things. First, God uses trials to test our faith. And the word test or testing in verse 2, it doesn't mean the kind of test where God is wanting to find out whether our faith is real or not. I mean, it is true that trials reveal our true heart and what we genuinely believe and trust in, perhaps more than anything else. And if our faith is not real, it will be evident in how we respond to the trials and difficulties we encounter in life. But that is not the main point of this testing. See, this kind of test seeks to prove or refine what is already there. It's a word used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the process of purifying or refining precious metals. For instance, if you are purifying or refining gold or silver, what you do is you put it in a container and you, you heat it up until it's so hot that it, that it literally melts and as the melted metal churns around and bubbles and bubbles, the impurities in it rise to the top where they can be skimmed off. And what's left is a purer, more refined, more precious, more valuable silver or gold. See, that's what God is doing in our trials. He is purifying and refining our faith to make it stronger and more valuable. Because, see, our faith and trust in God is extremely precious and valuable to him. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, as he is referencing the greatness of the salvation God has accomplished for us and how that's being kept in heaven through faith for us. And he says this, he says, in this you rejoice, this salvation. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter says your faith is one of the most precious things to God that there could ever be. When you walk through a difficult time trusting God, wanting to follow him, relying on him, depending on him, there are few things that give God more glory and honor than that. When God sees you doing that, he looks down and he says, that's my daughter. That's my son. You know. And I think Peter is intentionally ambiguous at the end of that verse when he says that kind of faith, that refined, purified faith, he says it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think it results in praise and glory and honor for Jesus Christ and for God, but it also results in praise and glory and honor for you when that day comes. 
You see, God uses trials to refine and purify our faith and trust in him. Second purpose, James tells us, for trials is that the purifying of our faith produces steadfastness and endurance. In verse 2, he says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, the strengthening of our faith leads to an ability to persevere and endure difficulty without wavering in our faith and trust in God. See, God builds something within us that enables us to persevere in trusting him through the difficult times. And as we see God's faithfulness in sustaining us and keeping us in our trials again and again, our faith and trust in him grows. See, trials strengthen our faith and endurance so that when difficulties and challenges come, we can stand firm in our faith through those times. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, one of our daughters went through a really difficult trial in her teen years and she went through a a period where she was really struggling with whether her faith was real whether she had repented from her sins sufficiently and this was just this huge battle for her and she was you know just miserable as she wrestled with this and there were lots of tears and lots of long conversations and and she just couldn't seem to get this settled in her heart uh, through that time. And, and this went on and on and on for about two years. And it was a really challenging time for her. And at the end of that roughly two years, she kind of settled this issue. And through that challenge, those, that difficult time, as hard as it was, God built a foundation. He built something in her that I think will help sustain her through the other challenges and trials that she faces in life as it continues to unfold. You see, God uses our trials to strengthen us, to stand firm and persevere in the challenges of life that he has for us down the road. And then the third purpose, James says, is God uses trials to develop and mature our character to be more like Christ. In verse 4, he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God uses trials to mold and develop our character, to help us grow spiritually and build spiritual maturity into our lives. You know, as much as we might like the easy times, as much as we might prefer the easy times to hard times, the easy times usually don't do nearly as much to build spiritual growth and maturity in our lives as hard times do. I mean, I don't, maybe you can relate to that idea. I know I can. As I look back over my life and You know, by God's grace, my life has not had a lot of trials compared to some people. But I often think back to one particular time a number of years ago. I went through probably one of the most challenging times in my Christian life. It was a trial related to some things going on at work where I felt like I was being treated unfairly and wrongly. And it was a really 
difficult time for me. I mean, I was so discouraged and so miserable, I would literally get up every morning and cry as I thought about having to face the day. And I pleaded for God to take me out of that situation, to release me, to let me go. And during that time, if you had said, God's doing good things in your life through this, I would have said, I don't see it. I couldn't see anything good that was happening through that time when I was going through it. And it went on and on and on and on. It seemed like forever. And after about two or so years of being there, one day God just came along and removed me from it. But as time went by after that, and I looked back on that time, while I couldn't see any of this when I was going through it, I began to realize how much God had changed me through that time. How he had ripped out of me pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency that, was, that I was blind to. How my seeking to find my identity and my worth and what I did, he tore that out of my life as well and reoriented me. He humbled me and taught me how to walk with him rather than try to handle things myself through that time. And that difficult time, when I look back over my life, I think that did more to change me maybe than any other time that I know. That's the way trials work. The Apostle Paul echoes James's sentiments in Romans 5, 3 through 4, he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In his poem, Robert Browning Hamilton, in his poem, Along the Road, he said this, he said, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. See, James tells us that trials should be a reason to rejoice. And it, it's not that the trials are joyful in themselves. We don't, we don't rejoice in the trial itself. We don't ignore or act like we're unaware of the pain or suffering involved. See, joy is only possible if we understand the bigger picture of what's going on. If we understand that God uses trials to shape us and to prepare us in some way to experience more of the incredible glory that awaits us in our coming inheritance. You see, we can't let our feelings or how we might interpret our experience define our understanding of trials. Because joy is only possible if we view our trials through eyes of faith. Real faith understands that a loving, sovereign God is in complete control of every detail of the trials we face. Real faith knows that trials are God's tools to shape our lives for good. 
Second point we want to draw from this passage is God uses trials to draw us to trust and rely on him. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. James goes on to say, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, if trials are going to have the effect in our lives that God desires, there is a response required on our part. So James tells us that we, we need to respond in wisdom to the trials we encounter. But I think we can be confused sometimes on what wisdom involves in the midst of a trial. See, wisdom is not understanding what God is doing or why we're going through a particular trial. Often when we're in a trial, what we ask God for is understanding when we're in the midst of it. I mean, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I can't tell you how many times I think I've said to God as I've gone through something, say, Lord, if, if you just kind of show me what it is you're wanting me to get here, if you just kind of tell me and help me to see it, Lord, I'll get it. Look, we, we can be done with this and move on. Just let me know what it is you're trying to teach me. Can you relate to that? You just, you just want to understand, right? And somehow we think that if we could just understand on, if God would just let us in on what he's doing, if we could just understand it, we would just instantly get it and be different. And there'd be no more need for this trial to continue. And, you know, the reality is when we, when we pray like that, we just want out. We just want out of that trial. Do you know the truth is? God doesn't need our understanding or our help in accomplishing his purpose in our lives with trials. He is able to do it completely apart from our knowing what he's doing. He doesn't need our conscious assistance. He doesn't need us to learn something consciously through a trial. You see, trials are not about teaching us. They're about changing us. I think trials, going through trials is kind of like surgery. You know, you don't, you don't go into surgery and say to the surgeon, you know, if you just kind of help me understand what it is you're going to be doing here and kind of what you're going to do, then we can just, we can just skip all this, the operation and the, the recovery and the therapy that I'm going to have to go through. Just tell me what it is you want me to be different in and I'll just, I'll just do it. That's not the way surgery works, is it? When you go into surgery, you submit yourself to the care of the surgeon, and you don't do anything, right? You just, you just lay there, and he operates on you, and as he does so, the recovery and the therapy, they're all part of the process of the change and healing that is being brought about by the surgery, and you don't have to understand any of it to benefit from it. And I think that's often the way God works in trials. He doesn't need our help. He is the infinitely wise surgeon. And let me just say this. Let me give, give you a little caution here. 
Because if you understand this, I would just encourage you, don't be too quick to think you know what God is doing in other people's trials in life. I mean, if you're like me, if I, if I see somebody going through a trial, particularly if it's somebody I care about, somebody I love, I just so much want to say something to them to encourage them, to help them understand. See, I can think, I can see what God is doing in this trial in your life, even though you can't, right? Well, here's what I've learned over the years. <clears throat> Almost every time that I think I know what God is doing, whether it's in my life or somebody else's, I am almost always wrong. <laughs> almost always wrong. Because God is so... His ways are so bigger than my ability to think and understand. What he's doing is usually something that I'm not going to see clearly in my life or somebody else's. So just caution in your desire to encourage others in their trials. Sometimes you just have to say, I don't know. I, I don't know why this is happening. But I can pray for you, you know. See, wisdom, wisdom isn't our understanding what God is doing. Wisdom is simply knowing how to respond to the situation in a way that would please and honor God. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on James, says it this way. He says, wisdom is the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. See, wisdom is, what do I need to do today to respond in a way that honors God in this situation? Wisdom is walking through a trial, responding to the best of our ability the way God would want us to. It's trusting and relying on him that his way is best. And James tells us that if we lack wisdom, if we lack knowing what to do, to respond to some trial we're going through, if we're not sure what we need to do in that difficult situation, we can go to God and we can ask Him for wisdom. And God is delighted to give us wisdom so that we can know how to respond in a way that would please Him. See, He wants us to rely on Him. He's longing to help us know how to respond wisely. He is for us in our trials, not against us. He's not trying to destroy you in the trials that you go through. And James tells us in verse 5 that God gives wisdom generously. He gives it to all who ask. And he gives it without reproach. And do you know what that means? It means like when you go to God and say, Lord, I need wisdom. God's not sitting there with his arms crossed saying, look, you know, I warned you, you know. Or, you know, didn't I tell you? Or how many times have I, you know, or if you just hadn't done that, that's, that's reproach. And that is not like God. God is not focused on critiquing you for all the ways you may be falling short as you go through that trial. You see, the reality is you will fail at times when you go through a trial. You won't always handle everything just right and wisely. 
I mean, that's the nature of the testing process, right? The impurities are being brought to the surface so that they can be skimmed off, and those impurities sometimes come out in our lives. That's part of how God changes us. And so there will be times when you won't always do it the right way, but that's okay. You can go to God and say, God, help me understand how to walk with you through this time. You see, God is for us and wants to help us respond wisely. And he's the God who loves to give wisdom to us as we seek him in his word and in prayer and through the counsel of other believers. See, God wants to draw us to trust and rely on him in our trials. And the only thing that he requires is that we come to him in faith, relying on him and not ourselves, trusting in his wisdom and not our wisdom or some other wisdom, wanting to please him rather than our own desires, willing to walk his path and not our own. Verses 6 through 8 tell us that the person who doubts God and relies on himself or some other source of wisdom, that person won't receive anything from him because he's double-minded and unstable. The idea of double-minded is, is you, there's, there's no solid commitment to anything. You're just jumping back and forth. You're wavering between wanting God's help but trusting in something else at the same time or looking someplace else. See, James isn't talking here about momentary periods of struggle or questioning. He's talking about a doubt that shapes what a person trusts in and their motives. He's talking about a doubting where we trust our own wisdom or the world's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. A doubt that reflects a turning from God rather than relying upon him. See, it's a person who's inconsistent and wavers between trusting God and taking things into their own hands, relying on human or worldly wisdom. A person who's not set on pursuing God's will. And James uses this picture, he says, a person like that, you're you're like a, a wave of the sea tossed about by the wind. And he's not he's not talking about waves that kind of the surf that breaks on the beach. He's talking about waves out in the middle of the ocean and and the just the shape of them is constantly changing as the wind blows. There's there's nothing solid that's keeping them firm and stable. See, the issue is not whether we ever struggle with questions or momentary doubts. The issue is who do we turn to and where do we look as we wrestle through those times of questioning and doubt? Do we look to God in those moments even though we may not understand everything? Or do we choose to look elsewhere? Do we rely on ourselves or something else and walk our own path instead? You see, why would God give his wisdom to someone who isn't trusting him or committed to following it? 
God won't grant the request of someone who's seeking to pursue their way and isn't set on pursuing God's way in the midst of a trial. He will not bless or reinforce that in our lives. You see, trials are designed to help us see our need for God more clearly. And God uses trials to draw us to trust and rely on him. And then finally, the third thing we want to see in this passage about how God uses trials is God uses trials to keep our eyes on what's most important in life. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You know, severe poverty was a significant trial for many of those whom James is writing to in this letter. But James reminds them in verse 9 that the poor person is really rich when it comes to what truly matters in life if they have trusted in Jesus Christ. A few verses later in James chapter 2, verse 5, James will say this. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And as for the rich person, see, riches mean nothing when it comes to the things that are truly important. Jesus told us that in Luke 12, 15, as he speaks to his disciples, and it says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, the rich person must remember that all their riches will one day perish. God is seeking to build into their life things far more important than riches. And God is using trials to build faith and character in both the rich and the poor. And you know, I think it's easy for those who are poor to think that the rich don't have trials. But riches and prosperity, they bring trials of their own. With prosperity, cares and temptations increase in many ways. Prosperity can tempt us to put our hope and trust in other things. Prosperity makes us prone to pride and self-sufficiency. Prosperity tempts us to forget God and live for ourselves. The trials of prosperity can be much less painful to live with at times. But they can be far more deadly to our faith and our commitment to God. And honestly speaking, for most of us in this room, the trials of prosperity are probably a far greater concern than the difficulties of poverty. 
And James wants us to know that both riches and poverty are temporary. They're both sure to pass. And when that day comes, only one thing will be truly important. When that day comes, the only thing that will really matter is whether you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus. God says it in through the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See, God says it's, it's not about wisdom. It's not about power. It's not about riches. This is the only thing that really matters is whether you have a living, personal relationship with God. And that's exactly why Jesus Christ came to this earth, that he might make a way for people who have, in their sin, been separated from that relationship with God, that Jesus might come and make a way to open that relationship up to us. And he did that by coming into this world as a human being, by living a life of perfect obedience where he never sinned so that he could credit or give to us that perfect righteousness, that perfect obedience. And then he dies on a cross to take the sins that separate us from God upon himself. And he bears the penalty for them. And he pays the price for them. So that if we will look to him, if we will turn from whatever else we may be trusting or putting our hope in and put our hope and trust in him as our Lord and Savior, that God forgives us and wipes our sins away and he gives us the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that we can be brought into that relationship, that living, real relationship with God, a God who is not only loving and perfect love, it says, but who is just and righteous, and Jesus makes a way to satisfy every part of who God is so that we can come into a personal living relationship with him. And so my question as you sit here or listen in online today is do you have that personal living relationship with God through Jesus? Have you placed Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you put your trust in him to save you, to bring you into that relationship with God as one of his children? You know, Jesus is really the only way that God has given us to do that. And Jesus himself said it, you know, when one of his disciples was, he was about to 
knew to leave and be crucified and his disciples he's telling him he's going away and he you know he's going to prepare a place for them and he'll one day come and bring them to be with him and one of his disciples said, well, Lord, how, how do we know the way? How do we know the way to where you're going so that we can be sure that we'll be with you, you know, for eternity there and be, be a, a part of those who will be with you? And in those well-known words in John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And James tells us in verse 12, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. See, James tells us that for those who love God, those who have that personal living relationship with him through faith in Christ, God promises the day will come when there will be blessing and reward for those who know him and love him. And no matter what kind of trials you have to go through here in this life, if we remain steadfast in our faith and trust in God in the midst of trials, if we persevere seeking to honor him and obey him and how we respond to the best of our ability, we won't be perfect. But God will ultimately bless and reward those who remain faithful to him as we persevere through various trials. And sometimes that reward is in this life. Many times it is. But it is a guarantee for the life to come. God promises a crown of life to all who remain faithful to him, and no trial will ever be able to steal that promise from us. Paul says it in Romans 8.18. He says this, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, trials help to remind us where our hope really lies. They help us to keep our eyes fixed on the reward and blessing that awaits us when that final day comes. See, God uses trials to keep our eyes on what's most important in life. And if we look at trials with eyes that see with real faith, Trials are simply tools that God is using to shape our lives for good. If I could have the worship team come and join me. You know, trials, they're really a part of God's plan for us, really throughout our Christian lives. I mean, we face trials growing up as young people, new trials when we reach the college years. Yet somehow we think that if we can just get to the next stage of life, then our trials and difficulties will be over. Yet it never seems to happen, does it? We get married, and we find there are trials in learning to love and live with our spouse. We have children and learn that parenting has its own set of trials, and so it goes. 
You know, the only qualification we need to experience trials is simply to be alive. And the question is not whether we will taste trials in our life. All of us will in the many unique ways God designs for each one of us. I mean, and, and there is no doubt that many of you here today find yourself in the midst of some trial right now. I mean, maybe it's sickness or the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's concerning a parent or spouse or a child. Maybe it's just some personal struggle you're facing in your work or in school or your personal life. Maybe it's some temptation that you're struggling with and and battling and, and not always being successful with. Maybe it's something else. And trials are painful, they're hard, and they can sometimes seem to last forever. And the question we need to ask ourselves in those times is what do we see when we look at the trials in our lives? Do we only see the pain and suffering? Do we focus only on the difficulty or the inconvenience? Do we only see the problems and the bad things that could happen? Do we see a God who we think doesn't love or care about us because he has allowed this trial? Will we let our feelings or what we can see define how we see trials? You see, there's no joy to be found there. Or will we see a loving, sovereign, perfectly good God working in and through our trials? Will we see with eyes of faith that look beyond the immediate situation? Faith that knows that God is using this trial to build our faith and character. Faith that knows God is using this trial to draw us to trust and rely on him. Faith that knows that God is using this specific trial to help us keep our eyes on what is truly important in life. See, the only way we will ever consider trials to be a joy is if we look beyond the trial that with eyes that see with real faith. Because real faith knows that trials are tools that God uses to shape our lives for good. So let's close by standing and singing together. Because no matter what you may be going through now or in the future, one thing you can know with absolute certainty is that God is faithfully holding you in his loving hands as you walk through that time. And he will never, ever, ever let you go.